We are now in Matthew 25. We're in the second half or so of the Olivet Discourse. We're still looking at the time of the end. That's what these texts are about. This is what this extended teaching from Jesus is. But what we've seen as we have read these things and studied them, we've been focusing on the end, but the question is, when will the end come? And figuring out what to do while you wait for the end to come, that can be an art form, especially if you are ever traveling with smaller young children. Trying to keep everyone occupied as you await for your destination is essential. To maintain my own sanity, you have to occupy these kiddos. Unless you want to be badgered by constant comments and questions like, I'm bored, or questions like, what time is it, and can I go to the bathroom now, and has it been five minutes yet, and when does our plane leave? I can't handle it. Aaron and I have family on the West Coast, so we've flown across the country several times, and over those times, you know, we've become more experienced. We've accumulated a bag of tricks to survive the, the travel. You got questions, kids? Here, goldfish crackers. Boom. Bored? Get out the crayons and paper. Let's work on that card game. But the mother of all long-wait survival methods must be our portable DVD player, such that once we were flying out of Reagan Airport here in D.C., and our flight was delayed, and they said the delay might be 45 minutes to an hour or two, no problem. You should see this bag of tricks I got. Portable DVD player, boom, we're ready to go. And then it was two hours, and then there was three, four-hour delay, six-hour delay, eight-hour delay, And I'm as desperate as the next father, but I can only let my kids fry their brain on media for so long, right? In the end, the kids did great, and even when we wouldn't let them watch DVDs the whole time. But here's the thing. We were prepared to wait. We had what we needed to prepare to wait for that airplane. We just didn't know how long we'd be waiting in the airport. And in a way, as Christians, as we've heard from Jesus, we're anticipating the end, and we're called to wait. We're not sure how long it could be. You might say we're waiting for our flight out of here. But what are we supposed to do in the meantime while we wait? What are, what are we looking to do as we wait for Christ's return? What does faithful, faith-filled waiting for his, the return of our king look like? And so that's the question posed this morning, and that's the one that Jesus comes to answer. So Jesus could come at any time. We've been seeing that as we work through all of a discourse. We just don't know when that is. So what has he called us to do in full faith and in obedience to him to do in the meantime? How can we be faithful to the end? And so he gives us two illustrations, two parables that teach us about these things. And so we have then two points this morning about how we can be faithful to the end. What do we do while we wait? And the first thing is you need to be ready and prepared. How do we faithfully wait for Christ's coming? You need to be ready and prepared vigilant, on the lookout. And we see that in verses 1 to 13 with what is commonly called the parable of the ten virgins. Now again, just to rehearse the context briefly for a moment, Jesus has been teaching his disciples all about the end, all about the end of the age. He was telling us when, so to speak, the end was going to begin, which is, well, you don't know, and it's going to be a surprise. That's what we looked at last time. But furthermore, he spent most of chapter 24 explaining the signs of the times. What's it going to be like in those last days? What are the road markers, the signs that indicate you are in the very last seven years of this earth as we know it? Signs like persecution, wars, the Antichrist, followed by signs in the heavens, and then that culminates with Jesus' return, touchdown on earth. But as chapter 24 came to a close, Jesus began giving us the so what. What are we supposed to do with this information, especially if there's 
a great chance that we're not the ones that are going to see these things expressly. What are we supposed to do while we wait? Well, the key watchword we had was be ready, keep watch, be vigilant, be on the lookout for Christ's return at the end. And now as we come to chapter 25, he's expanding on this teaching. How do we live now, given that we don't know when he'll come and the end's going to come and it's going to be serious? But he doesn't just add to that. He adds a new wrinkle to it in these next two parables, as we'll see. And the wrinkle is this. And what if while we're waiting, it takes a long time? What if his coming is delayed? How are we supposed to live then? Because in both of these parables, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents, that's what we find, a delayed coming. The master is gone for a long time. The groom's taking a lot longer to arrive than initially anticipated. So it's true. Jesus could come at any time. We don't know when that is. There's nothing that needs to happen first to precipitate his coming, to get his church out of here and to, and to bring on the last seven years on earth to kick off those final days. Nevertheless, though nothing else needs to happen between today and Jesus' return, that doesn't mean he's going to come immediately. That doesn't mean he's going to come this hour. He could. doesn't mean he's going to come tomorrow or before the Super Bowl, though some of us wish he would. And this is most evidently true given that Jesus taught these things 2,000 years ago, saying some 2,000 years ago, there's nothing that needs to happen between now and my coming. And we've been waiting some now even 2,000 years. So let it be said, our salvation is closer at this moment than it's ever been. But still, we don't know when he might arrive. And it might take some time still. So what do we do in the meantime? What does trust in Christ, faithfulness to him, look like in the time of waiting? And so again, we have these two parables. And the first one we have is what we called the parable of the ten virgins here in verses 1 to 13. And what it teaches us, you must always be ready. You must always be prepared spiritually. Be prepared for his coming. So let's look at it. Verse 1 of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now this parable could easily be dubbed the parable of the ten girls or the ten bridesmaids, perhaps. The point is, it's not per se their virginity, but their youthfulness. And so then the relationship is probably friends to the bride. And the role, the job they had as part of the whole wedding feast and celebration was to go find the groom and escort him in the night to lead this procession back to the bride at the wedding feast. And as it was commonly in the first century, these kind of things did take place at night. And so hence, they need lamps or more likely, historically we gather, is they had something we call like a torch. It's what they used to light the way to lead back to the wedding feast. But of course, if you have lamps or torches or if you have flashlights, right, you need batteries, you need fuel, you need to keep these things going, otherwise it all burns out and we're all in the dark. And it's this matter of fuel and so then being prepared is what divides these ten young ladies into two camps, that is, between the wise and the foolish. Look at verses 2 to 4. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Again, you need fuel. Maybe it was a handheld lamp that you would pour oil into. Or these could have been torches, again, where you had oil-soaked rags, and you'd either have to re-soak the rags and then wrap them on the stick. 
But anyway, you needed fuel if you were going to have to maintain these things alive for any amount of time. This is basic. And it would be basic even for young girls. They would understand this. They would have seen weddings in their town time and again. They would know what they're supposed to do. But maybe you can assume, well, the groom's going to show up on time. (laughs) He's going to show up promptly. We probably don't need extra oil or all that much. Or maybe you do, verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And so you get the picture. You have all ten of the girls. They all go out there. Maybe their torches are already lit, and it's getting dark, and it's night. But in time, their torches burned out while they waited, and such that as the groom delayed longer than anticipated, they became comfortable, and they even fell asleep. So all their lights are out. You've got ten girls sleeping, sleeping on the job. But wake up, girls! The wait's over, verse 6. But at midnight was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps or prepared their torches. And so they hear this announcement now in the middle of the night. He's here. He's coming. It's what you've been waiting for. So girls, go get him. Lead him in the way. Only the foolish maidens were unprepared. They weren't ready. They couldn't light their lamps, verse 8. And the foolish said to the wise, "Uh, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. We're just quenched. And it's the old, Ah, I don't need to prepare because I know so-and-so is always prepared. I can always lean on them, unless you can't. So to their request and urgent need, the wise girls have to suggest, verse 9, But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us or for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And again, it's the middle of the night. We brought enough for ourselves, but only enough for us. Sorry. We were prepared, but we weren't prepared for you, too, to forget. So you're going to have to go out and buy some on your own. And going out at that hour to buy oil would be a challenge, if not impossible. And they know the groom is coming. Maybe they see the lights of his, the rest of his entourage coming around the street. They know that time is now, that he's coming now. But they have no other option, really. I mean, what can these girls do? So they must go. Verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. I mean, just reading the story, it's like you can hear the door slam, can't you? Just the finality of it. It's foreboding. And sure enough, as they eventually make it back and come, with their lamps now ready and lit, it's too late. Verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Wow, that's heavy, isn't it? It's tragic. Sad. They weren't ready. They weren't there at the right time. They got shut out. And so they cry out at the door, Lord, Lord, open to us. That sound familiar to anything else we've seen in the book of Matthew? I believe it is. The only other times you see Lord, Lord like that, at least in Matthew's gospel, it's this account from the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember how that ended in Matthew chapter 7? He warned that not everyone who cries out to him, Lord, Lord, are going to make it into his kingdom. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. You can sense the desperation. You can sense the presumption. 
You can sense the, at least the feeling they think they know this Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Again, they cry out in both cases. They think they know him. They think, they think that he is their Lord, their master. But in the end, in both teachings, the master says, the groom says, Jesus will say, but I never knew you. Depart from me. I don't know who you are. You don't belong here. You don't belong to me. I'm not your master. I'm not the groom, at least for you. And of course, that's the great tragedy in both cases. They're crying out to him. They think, they presume to know Jesus. They presume to have some connection to him, some relationship with him. But then the door gets shut in their face to then hear, I never knew you. And it's not, I once knew you or, I, oh, I forgot about you. I used to know you, but I never did. I never had a relationship with you. And what was it then that identified and distinguished between those who knew Jesus and those who didn't, those who knew the groom and those who did not? Well, we saw in Matthew 7, those who truly knew him obeyed his word. They didn't just hear his word. They did what he said. They kept watch in this case. They were prepared. The others only assumed to know him. But if they knew him and they knew how trustworthy he was, they would have trusted his word to then be ready and be prepared, even if he delayed. And so in the delay, in the end, they were not welcomed in. It was too late. So Jesus turns to the so what, the punchline. Watch, therefore, for you neither you know neither the day nor the hour, verse 13 of Matthew 25. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So then, how are we to watch for Jesus' coming? Uh, what are we learning here? It means we need to be ready. We need to be like the, the wise girls who had the extra oil. They were prepared to wait faithfully for their Lord, even if it means they must wait some time. It may take a while, and just as he said so, and he's told us now. And he calls us to trust for him, look for him, be ready for him, but stay prepared, stay ready. There's a couple of things we can glean furthermore from this story. Did you catch this, that the girls couldn't borrow the oil from others who were prepared? Others couldn't be ready for them? It's really about whether you're ready or not. You can't presume on others to be able to get your soul ready to meet Jesus. It's going to come down to you and Jesus. You can't hope to hide in your parents' godliness and faith. You can't hope to hide behind that you're a part of a church that takes the Bible seriously. That doesn't count for you to be spiritually ready yourself, your own soul before Jesus. You can't count on others to be holy for you, spiritual for you, ready on your behalf. You can't come to that final day and presume you'll just get bailed out again. You cannot sneak through on another's faithfulness. Except in one case, of course. That is, it's not entirely true. Because your only hope to escape the judgment is to do what? You have to hide yourself in Christ. You hide yourself in His holiness. You hide yourself under His righteousness, His preparedness that came and was... Made you prepared, qualified is the way Colossians puts it. But that qualification that he works and that he has accomplished, again, who's it for? It's for those who trust him. It's for those that heed his word. 
It's those that trust him so much, when they hear his word, they listen to it. That means they take it into account, they follow through on it. They believe his word that he's coming back, even if it takes a long time. So they're going to be prepared for otherwise. It's just presumption. A presumption that will lead to a massive disappointment. So don't assume this morning that you are right with God. Don't presume Christ will just have to show you mercy on that last day. Don't presume on the faith of your Sunday school teachers or your parents or all the Bible verses you memorized in Awana. No, you, you yourself need to be right with him now. Too much is at stake. There's too great a cost. The time might be too short. You just have no idea. Either too short for you or too short for when he comes. Turn to Christ now. Rest in his death now for your sins before it's too late. And mercy's window closes. But then finally, and it's the continuing theme through here, the other gleaning is this. It just might be a while. Again, we have no idea. It could come tomorrow, so you need to be ready now. It could come, your flight could be delayed 45 minutes. It could be delayed eight hours. Your flight could be, in that sense, canceled altogether just to use the illustration. So we need to be ready for the long haul. Need to be preparing yourself for the the long road trip of the Christian life. So you've got to have your things with you. You know, how do you prepare to go to a friend's house for the Super Bowl this afternoon? You know, what do you need to bring? Bag of chips, nacho cheese, maybe nothing because they are hosting it all for you. So you just go in. You might not even grab your jacket. It might be like cold outside. Be like, ah, we'll be in the car. We'll run in the house. Fine. It's a lot different when you're going to go on a cross-country road trip, isn't it? What does your car look like when you go on a long road trip? Mine is jammed. I can't see out the back window because we got to have everything. Namely, the DVD player, right? Got extra snacks, check. Plenty of DVDs, check. You got the gases filled up, check. This isn't a little drive down the street. This is the drive of your life to walk faithfully and so then be prepared one step at a time. So be ready, stay ready, get prepared now right with your heart with Christ and be cultivating ways to keep your heart right with him. And a big part of that, it's like we talked about last week, is fellowship. Be ready and prepared. Next, how do we look faithful to the end is that we are faithful and fruitful. We find that in this next illustration of the talents. How do we get ready for the end? We must be faithful and fruitful. That is, what's the thing we must do to get to the end? It's this, to faithfully, fruitfully work for our king until he gets here. That's what our call is. And so to picture that, he gives us another illustration, this time about servants, and some we should imitate, and some one in particular we shouldn't. Let's listen. Verse 14, of Matthew 25. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. His assets, his, his wealth. And we'll see, this is a huge sum of property he ends up entrusting to them. He's pretty rich. He probably had many slaves. And he chooses just three to administrate and conduct his business dealings on his behalf while he's gone. Verse 15. To one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one. To each according to his ability, then the master went away. Now, a talent was 
worth about the equivalent of $800,000 in today's monies. So this guy's pretty rich. He's probably plenty well off. So he has this total of eight talents that he's investing in these three servants of his to invest for him, to oversee. And that might seem uh, to our own pocketbook and administration and thoughts on, say, slavery. That's a, that's a lot to entrust to somebody. And in one sense it is, but this was very common in those days. The slaves, even in your own household, could be very specialized. So these might be our accountants and investors and business managers. And a good slave, you would entrust to him all of these things for his benefit and for yours. But you notice, of course, the master does not entrust to each servant equal amounts, but rather he gives some more and he gives some less. And it's based on what he perceives, probably what he already observed in their life, what he perceived their ability, whatever their ability warranted, how faithful they are, how gifted they are, that's what he entrusted to them. I mean, again, they were his own slaves. He likely knew their strengths and their limits. And so he gave them amount fit to their respective capabilities. And then he was off. You got instructions, you got the money, you know what you're supposed to do. Trust you guys. See ya. And perhaps a wealthy man like this, he's on some other business adventure. Maybe he's acquiring a small nation, you know, or he's working on behalf of the government at the time. It doesn't really matter. It's not the point of the story. The focus is on these servants and what they do with what's entrusted to them. And the first two work really hard, and they do so immediately for their master. Verses 16 and 17. For he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. And so just noticing a couple things. They were industrious. They got to work right away. He who received the five talents went at once. He got to work and fast. And again, it seems like the master's assessment of these first two servants was excellent. He knew them to be good workers, and so he gave them more to do. And the master and his judgment is going to be rewarded for his slave's industry. And so both of them go out, work hard, and earn as much as they've been given. And then, of course, we have the third servant, the one entrusted with the least. And this guy takes a different approach. Verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, uh, this is not as dumb as it sounds, or at least that's how I looked at it at first. That is, in ancient times, this was probably the safest thing you could ever do with money, is bury it, assuming you remembered where you buried it, and no one else knew about it, right? But this was common. People in the ancient days buried their treasure. That was a way to keep it safe. If you didn't want to work with the money and you just wanted to keep it safe, secure, burying it was probably the wisest thing to do, as opposed to holding it in your house where it could be easily stolen. Again, if your aim is just to keep it safe, then you're golden. This is the right approach. The only thing, and most evidently, is that the slave's aim about just keeping the money safe was not the right aim or approach he was at all supposed to have. That is, his master gave him an aim, gave him a purpose, gave him a mission, and he said, Ah, no thanks. I'm going to do this instead. And for this miscalculation, there will be consequences. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So first, it's a long time. There's been a long delay. And now as he comes, there's a reckoning. So again, you notice then immediately the parallel between the earlier parable of the ten virgins. The, The master was delayed. He was gone a long time, again, like the groom. 
And in this case, what does that mean? If the master's gone a long time, you've had more time to do your work. Ample opportunity to make something on the investment he gave you. And then the master comes. He comes to settle accounts, which highlights for us. There's a judgment that comes along with our own master's return. There will be a reckoning. There will be accountability. We'll see that, Lord willing, next week when we look at the final parable there at the end of this chapter. He will settle accounts with us. Even those in Christ, we must appear before his judgment seat. And so are you ready to do it right now? How do I know if I've been ready? Have you been fruitful and faithful? For this is what distinguishes the master's varied responses to his servants as he assesses them. So first, we have the slave entrusted with the five talents. Let's look at verse 20 now. And he who received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. So the the first servant's industry paid off. He made five more talents. He doubled his master's investment. That's pretty good. And accordingly, the master was pleased. Verse 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. That's a lot of little, by the way. Shows you how rich this master probably is. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Brothers and sisters, are these not the words we long to hear one day? Well done. Well done, Ron. Good and faithful servant. Come into my joy. Thank you. I mean, I can't imagine hearing that. If I heard well done, Rick, I think I'd be looking around to see where my old pastor Rick Holland is. I mean, you can't be talking to me. Surely you have to mean someone else. I mean, to be commended, not just tolerated, not like, okay, I see you, Rick, but just, I'm going to look this way and you can just walk right into heaven. I just won't look. It's not that. You're invited in. You're pointed out and called and commended to share in Christ's joy and what he's done through you. And that you get to rejoice together. I mean, what greater words can be said? Especially when we know the only reason we got to be his servant is because he's so merciful. We have no business being in his administration. We're only there because he overcame all of our sins, our rebellions. We're only there because he made us righteous in Christ first. And then in response, what have we done? Well, we've we've given our life to him. We have sacrifice for him. If you walk after him, this means you're, you're, you're giving your life to him. You're serving Jesus. You're curbing your anger, for example. You're putting others first. You're humbling yourself because you're doing it for your master. To then give our lives to him. And then at the end, to have him see that, acknowledge that, praise that, and rejoice in that. And then to call you to come forward and enjoy it with him. To see his smile and delight. To see his joy and know he doesn't regret choosing you. I mean, there can be nothing better than that. And just put some perspective, though, just on an aside, about whose praise and satisfaction and commendation are we really living for? Whose attention are we trying to get? Whose is more worth living for than Christ's? And we find the master's joyous response to be the same over the, the next servant, verses 22 and 23. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you've delivered to me two talents, and here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, 
Good and faithful servant, you've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And we observe he had produced three less talents than the servant before him. And yet, notice the master's delightful response is the exact same. Do you get it there? It's not about the numbers, is it? The commendation and delight is expressed intentionally by Jesus in the very same way to show you it's not about how successful you are. It's not about numbers. It's not about things that you can probably put in some criteria. It's about faithfulness. It's not about how much fruit, but is there fruit? Have you been faithful? Because again, they were given different starting sums. One got five, the other got two. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the one given more produced more on the investment. And yet the praise was the same because they both had been faithful. Such that he even wants to entrust more to them. And of course, this is illustrative of the Christian life between all of us here as we serve our Christ. Despite what we naturally think. That is so easy for us to be comparing ourselves to others, isn't it? It's this very driving force behind our legalistic pride. We're all about trying to justify ourselves. Oh yeah, I'm a real Christian because I'm a better Christian than they are. I perform better. I have more fruits. I got more numbers. I'm at church more Sundays than they are. I read the Bible more. I go to church more. I share the gospel more. I got five. You only got two. So many more people go to our church or go to my small group or, or go to whatever I'm doing than yours. But our master's asked for faithfulness. Faithfulness to what you've been entrusted with. And this comes up when the Apostle Paul speaks about spiritual gifts in Romans 12. Of course, we can't look at all of this at all. But just to highlight for us, it tells us there, he tells us in Romans 12, the Spirit, okay, let's put it this way. If you come to Christ, His Spirit dwells in you. But then He gifts you to serve Him by His Spirit. And He doesn't give everybody the same gifts. And nor does He gift everyone the same amount. It's not all equal. Not everyone's given the same spiritual gifts, and nor does everyone have the same degree of giftedness. Here we read in Romans 12, verse 3, For by grace, so understand, this is a gift. You didn't earn this, deserve this. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God has assigned this. He is the one who said five talents, three talents, one talent, ten talents. Because he goes on, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them in proportion to our faith. He's just called you not to produce like everyone else, but to be faithful with what you've been given. That's in God's hands, what's been assigned. He determines the gift and amount of giftedness. And it's not all equal. It's not all the same. Not everyone has the same gift to leverage. So let's make a small comparison. Let's compare me to some guy named John MacArthur. Maybe we both have the gift of teaching, but that doesn't mean we're equally gifted. And that's okay. God's not calling me to be John MacArthur. And to steward 500 talents, or how many he was given, right? It's more like one and a half, or one. But am I going to be faithful with it? That's the issue. 
Will I be diligent to be fruitful with what I'm able to produce? Will I prove his investment was worth it? Will I be diligent? Because in that way, the faithful Christian will hear no less of Christ's delight and approval of their service than the other who produced many, many, many more talents. And so may we strive with whatever he's gifted us to strive to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, whatever ability we have, even still. But of course, now we turn to the one who is different as we go back to Matthew 25. Okay, there's being faithful with what you've been given. And then there's this last servant, the one who was given one talent and hid it in the dirt. And it seems he knows he hasn't done the right thing. Such that he immediately is throwing up qualifications, excuses, he's shifting blame. Verses 24 and 25. He also who received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Do you notice his excuses really come up as like an insult immediately against his master? I knew you to be a hard man. That's a, that idea is a rough man, an unyielding man, an oppressive man. He insinuates he's a wicked man who's taking advantage of other people's work. He takes from the worker to gratify himself and fill his own pockets. That's all this owner does. And more than this, the slave even claims to be scared. Oh, you don't want to cross my master. Here, I kept it safe. Take your money. I didn't want anything to do with it anyway. Never did. Finally, you begin to wonder, did the servant feel slighted for not being entrusted with more? Was he jealous of the others? Can you imagine that? Well, if he doesn't want to give me just one talent, fine, I'll just hide it in the ground. Why do they get those privileges? Why did they get to lead that? Why did he get to be part of a group so large and, and lead that? Why did they get a family like that? Why did they get money or talents or whatever like that? And in your jealousy, you're undercutting your desire to actually serve your master. You've lost sight of what this is about. But these lame excuses get the servant nowhere. Verse 26. But his master answered him, you wicked, slothful servant. The master's not buying it. This isn't about him being a supposedly hard master. This is about his slave being evil, wicked, and slothful. The word slothful here is used in the Greek translation of Proverbs to describe the famous sluggard. The one who won't get out of his bed. The one who's so lazy he can't actually lift his hand out of his bowl to eat his breakfast. Who's turning over like a hinge in his bed. Never at work. He's lazy. He's always working for excuses not to work and to blame his lack of productivity on other people. And his master calls him out on it. Again, verse 26 to 27. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I had not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? You really knew that about me? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have at least received what was mine own with interest. If we're really dealing with fear, O sluggard, if that was a legitimate excuse, you at least would have the sense to give my money to the bank. But that's not what this is about. And you notice it even for the master When he takes the money back, it's not about the money. He doesn't even give the money back to himself, so to speak. Look in 28 and 29. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, 
Even what he has will be taken away. Don't waste what little he's given you. But the master takes the talent, he gives it to the slave who has ten. And you start to wonder then, maybe the slave who got the ten, or even the one who got the two plus two, they got to keep it. Seems to be then part of the reward of faithful service. But he gives it to the slave he knows that we all know will do well with it. But as for the sloth, verse 30, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. His relationship with his master is permanently severed. The master sees him as worthless, of no use, good for nothing. And why? Because he didn't serve his master. He served himself. He couldn't be busied with the master's agenda. He bucked his responsibility. He didn't do what he was told. He wasted his time and talent that his his master entrusted to him, and he's going to be punished for it. And so then we have to turn to ourselves. What are we doing with the talents and resources, opportunities, energy, health that the Lord has entrusted to us for his work and his kingdom? Are we fruitful? Are we faithful? Not how much fruit do we have, but is there reproduction coming out of our life for the good of Christ's name? Are you using the gifts he's given to point others to Jesus? Does God work and resources multiply through you, or does it just become stagnant with you? As God pours his word into your life, is it pouring out anywhere else from you? He's given you the gospel. Is the gospel going out? He's given you his word and his spirit. Are you discipling anyone? Are you sharing things of Christ with them in his word? Are you investing, building others up in all kinds of ways? You see, faithfulness looks like not just receiving the truth, but seeking to reproduce it in others, in your children, in your neighbors, in your fellow church members. Don't bury it under the excuse, oh, but I don't want to mess it up. He calls us out and says, don't be slothful. Get to work. I've given you my word and my spirit. I will work out the details. Don't bury it for jealousy that, well, others get to serve more. I wish I had more. Well, be faithful with what you've been given. That's the master's call. Because get this, what we've seen, as we, especially as we anticipate next week, we must be ready in season and out of season because there comes a time when time runs out. There are no second chances then. There's no more opportunities afterward. It'll be too late before you know it. Don't waste the opportunity. One pastor put it so succinctly, lost opportunities cannot be regained. So don't just receive. Reproduce. Use those gifts. Be faithful and fruitful until he comes. That's what we're going to be about while we wait until our king comes back. Let's pray that we can be found most faithful. Let's pray together. Indeed, O Christ, we pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for our tendency to sloth, our tendency to have our own agenda, our own plan, at the neglect of yours. May we be diligent, may we be fruitful and faithful with all the resources you've given us, that we would do all things, we would use all things, that you would be exalted. Even as we enjoy so many good things you've given, again, may not even the thanks and praise just stay with us, but may it come out of our mouths and come out of our life. 
that others would see how great of a master you are. May the world see, may we remind one another in our faithfulness as we serve, that we serve a gracious master. And what a privilege it is to be called into your service. So give us strength even this hour as we sing more to you, as we pray to you, as we encourage the saints, that we would have the energy, the joy, as we know your approval waits for all who are faithful in you. But we need you. Keep us faithful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.